Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. Though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Jesus Christ, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Today, um, I have asked uh, Stella and Haley to take a moment to um, sing this song. It's a, such a privilege that I get to be able to proclaim Christ to you every Sunday through his word. And one thing I know is that no matter how much I prepare, no matter how much I practice, your heart will not be opened to the Lord and by his spirit unless the Holy Spirit opens your heart to him. And so this song is a song that just is a, our heart's desire that you would find your, your joy and your rest. And most of all, your heart will be open to Christ. So they're going to sing this song. And as they do, I hope you um, just pray that the Lord would open your heart to his word. Stop. 
that be our heart, that the word of God would implant itself richly in our hearts. Last week, we spoke from Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, and it had this wonderful phrase, we are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. May I say that if there is ever a passage of scripture that you need to consider memorizing, it is Galatians 4, 4 through 7. And the reason is because it reminds us of much of what we sang about today. We are free as sons and daughters, and freedom, we must never take that for granted. But the problem is that we so often forget that we are free, that we are sons and daughters, And so how do I know this to be true? Because in many ways, we're like the Galatians. They too forget and forgot these most precious words. And that's why Paul, as we saw from today's passage, is perplexed, is puzzled. George has shared often with us about what the mindset of an orphan is like in Africa. They are adopted into a new home, cleansed, given delicious foods, but at night they sneak out and they dive in, as he calls it, the dustbins. 
the dumpsters, the trash dumpsters. That is to say that though they're free, they still live in the trash. And so to the Galatians and so to us, we also live in the trash so often, even though we are sons and daughters. And we need to understand why this happens and why Paul is so perplexed, obviously, when this does happen. And he's perplexed because of two reasons. One is because of short-sightedness, the Galatian short-sightedness in verses 8 through 11. And then secondly is their forgetfulness in verses 12 through 40. So we're going to look at first how they are short-sighted. And if we read verses 8 through 11, we see formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. And you really get the sense of Paul's exasperation, his incredulity. He just can't imagine this happening. Why would they ever go back to their former life of worshiping idols when they've been rescued from that? When they'd been set free from bondage? Why would you handcuff yourself, imprison yourself when you've been set free? Why would you return as slaves when you're sons and daughters? Now, here's the thing. They weren't actually physically going back and setting up all their idols and worshiping them. What they were doing was a little different, but that little difference wasn't different at all, not at the core. What they were doing was trusting in their own laws and rules and their fest the festivals. And they were going back to thinking that it was something that they did that actually made them righteous. And if you think and consider what idolatry is, it's actually the same thing. Because here's the thing is that idols in Paul's day, was made out of human hands. They were made of wood. In fact, Scripture describes it in the book of Hosea that the wood that is on the, these idols, these little statuettes, the, the, Hosea describes it almost as though the wood is their skin. And God, through Isaiah and the prophets, is always saying, why would you ever try to construct these little idols and think that wood or gold or silver is something to be worshipped, to set your heart in, to fix your eyes upon. Idolatry at the core is because you're shaping the idol, you're carving the wood, you're molding the gold. It's basically determining for yourself what you place your security and rest in on what you do with your hands, your will, your intelligence. You've determined that actually, if I trust this idol and worship it, that's what's going to protect me and my family. And so what Paul's saying is the same core heart of physically making idols is no different than obeying the law. By saying that religious rituals, moral values, doing those things makes you righteous, not God himself through the gospel of the, of the cross. And that their attempt to be good enough, righteous enough, was no different than going back and setting up your idols on a little 
table and bowing down to them. It's the exact same heart. Let's, let's just take a very practical example, anger. If someone does something against you and makes you angry, and you simply push it down because you say to yourself, well, Christians shouldn't be angry. And we might not burst out in rage. By not doing that, we think we're pretty good. But know how easy for that rage to come out, to that come from that which is internalized to suddenly become internal. And it can happen all of a sudden. Yesterday I was driving and I was uh, coming into, you know, um, trying to get into a sort of, it was a freeway and there was a slowdown. There were a bunch of cars in front of me and I needed to get all the way to the far right where I was heading towards 680 North. And as I slowed down and was put on my blinker and there was an opening spot, but the traffic in this next lane wasn't moving fast enough. And so I sort of blocked it off. But the thing is, in my current lane, there was another car right there that was also stuck and another car, another car. So it was just a little space like this. And this person just started honking at me. And I, it was, uh, so I pulled in and um, I forgot, I think Elizabeth was with me. And uh, I pulled in and this person just like started zooming right by me. I was in my heart, I was saying, don't look, don't look. But I couldn't help it. I had to look. And I just stared at him and I glared. And uh, it, it was, I couldn't stop myself for, but from feeling so unjustly wronged and angry. Where does that come from? Why does it why does that have to happen? Because it's deep in my heart, this sense of righteousness. It doesn't take much for that to flow out of my heart. And here's the thing is that no one would see that. If I was alone in the car and I just got off in a rage and cursed that person out, I could come to church and then preach a sermon. And everything would seem okay, and it would seem the most godly of messages. But you would have never known that deep inside that soul is a sinful, angry person. You see, the problem is that God sees that heart, and I can't hide from him. And if I think just simply doing my religious duty, no matter how noble that duty is, including, as Stella just sang about, the proclamation and preaching of God's word, but even that could be done without a heart that is submitted before him. It could be done with the law alone. By trying to maintain control over your own life, you're being controlled by the idol of your heart. And that's the idol of self-worship. And that's what Paul is saying is enslaving me and you. But Paul's saying, you left that behind when you followed Christ. And it's dumpster diving when you have before you a feast. You have to realize that every time you turn back, you not only become enslaved to your idols, but Paul says that there are worthless elementary principles of the world that are hard at work to shackle you. And it would be as though an adopted son or daughter would want to go back to the orphanage take off their expensive clothing that they've been adopted into and through this wealthy 
caregiving, loving family, and they take off that expensive clothing, put on the threadbare rags and sleep in their filth and face the abuse of their adult care workers. That just doesn't make sense. But if we really examine our own hearts, is that ever a pull? That's what Paul is saying. You are going back. Why would you do that? Why would you go back to your enslaved state? And we do that every time we think that our good works makes us righteous rather than the righteousness of Christ. We see this in verse 10. They were exalting days, meaning the Sabbath. Months, seasons, years. Those are Jewish feasts above the gospel. That is to say that they believe by observing the Sabbath and other festivals, then surely God would be happy with them, love them, think they're righteous because of their observation of these days, and therefore they're good enough. Now, this is a really strong reprimand for us when we think that by attending church on Sundays or reading the Bible or going to discipleship groups or whatever it might be, that in and of itself makes us righteous. Again, these are all outflows of God's grace and blessing. We should be doing all of these things, but we need to know why we're doing these things. Many of you are watching this on television right now. Many of you are watching it um, at 6 p.m. right now because in the daytime, you went to the mall. There were a bunch of basketball games to watch, the playoffs. There are many things. So 7.30 p.m., you're watching it now. Or maybe right now, you're in the kitchen and you have it on a laptop in the corner and you're just making some food and then going back and watching. There are many, many different ways. Maybe this is, this is a poor reflection mirror of what worship is to be eventually. We don't, this is not supposed to be primary. This is supposed to be primary. This is but really like an emergency situation. But the reality is we're in this place. So maybe it's, well, it's at 10.30. I don't really need to watch it at that time because it's recorded anyway, so I go watch it at, you know, the last thing before I go to sleep. I'll put it on as my, it helps me to go to sleep. <laughs> I'll save it for later. Maybe you think, oh, I got to just fast forward the boring parts, <laughs> you know, or maybe right now my voice is about five pitches higher because you're listening to it on triple speed. Because you don't want to sit there for an hour and a half. You want it for a half an hour. So now it's, I, I, I have a chipmunk voice right now. That's how you're listening to this. And my friends, Paul is saying to you, do you really think that you're morally good and righteous because you turned on the television set to watch this and you're doing all these other things and as long as you do it and triple speed or as long as it's in the background while you're cleaning your house, then God is happy with you, and you've done what you need to do. Amos says this. God says this to Amos. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Why does God say that to Israel, to his people, whom he has beloved and, and set forth a covenant promise? Because actually they were just meeting to do their duty. Just to say, all right, I did it. Can I go back to my real life? My friends, maybe this is your temptation watching this right now. 
just doing it so that you can say, all right, good, I did what I need to do. Now I go back to what I really want to do with my life. I really want to watch this movie. I really want to spend my time with my friends. This is the danger, actually, of meeting online, is that we think of it as just one part. Now, we've always said this when we met together in person, but now we really are tempted to think, this is but a small part of my week. I just need to watch this television show, and then I can move on with doing what I really want to do. And Paul is saying, this is diving in the dumpsters. You're going back. Because what you're missing out is that God doesn't care whether you actually watch this or not. He actually cares whether your heart is there to watch. Your heart is there to be present. And we could be far from God. He, he says it so clearly. I hate, I despise you watching when your heart is not there. I don't think the answer is to say, all right, might as well not watch. No, I think the answer is to say, oh Lord, I'm sorry. My heart has been far. Please forgive me. Thank you for the cross. And I'm thankful that I can gather with his people, even in this very, very limited way. Another thing is we have to note, as Paul has just brought this to us, is that Satan is at work in wanting you simply to give your form, formal worship to God without any heart. He actually doesn't mind you coming to church on Sundays, watching on TV. He doesn't mind that as long as your heart is not there. In fact, he'd prefer that than even you not going. Because here's the, if you spend, if you're a complete pagan and heathen, you have no care for God, when you do possibly turn to him, it will be full. But the person who is religious, at least morally, who watches, who attends, but their heart is so far. It is so hard for that person to truly live their life for Christ, who have who surrendered everything. And by the way, that heart, that same heart gets transferred over to your children. So you can say, hey, make sure when you go to college, you go to church. But know this, they're going to follow their mom and dad. If they have seen you treat worship like it's an addendum to their life, don't expect them to actually act any differently than yourself. And one thing we know is Satan is at hard at work at making sure that you stay in that place. Um, I'm gonna quote Jack Miller a couple of times throughout this message. Jack Miller, I, I've shared this before, he was a professor at Westminster Seminary, also a church planting pastor, but more than anything else, he just really knows how to apply the gospel to your life. I mean, he, he's, he essentially was a key instrumental mentor for someone like Tim Keller. And he tells the story of one time where demons would not give up oppressing this woman that they were ministering to in Uganda when he was a missionary there. Their oppression over her was so great that her life was completely broken. And so when they were ministering to her and trying to actually cast out the demons, they said to her, do you want them to leave? He asked her, do you want them to leave? You know what her response was? Was no. She said she hated the bondage, but she wanted their power. And so taken aback, Jack realized that the demons were 
only clinging to what was deep in her soul, which was her idolatry and love of herself, self-righteousness. And what Paul is saying, when he says that these idols, this enslavement, the law and all that, that it's going back to the worthless elementary principles of the world, it's to say that Satan, what he does is he latches on to the heart that is self-righteous. When you are self-righteous and relying on your own heart, and that is an idolatrous heart, that heart is open to de demonic activity and oppression. And think of it like flies and maggots. They're not, they don't just come out of thin air. They need a, a host, a dead body, dead corpse. And so when the dead corpse is there, the you know, the flies lay eggs and they, it just implants itself all in and just creates this most disgusting atmosphere. So too demons. Demons are attracted to a spiritual deadness. They need a host. And when they see a heart that is idolatrous, self-righteous, one that says, I don't want to give up. They hate, this is the, the worst part, is that their lives are miserable and broken. Think of a drug addict who is absolutely succumbing to drugs or someone who is overwhelmed by lust and looking at all sorts of horrific pictures. And when you actually say, hey, do you want to take every effort to get rid of this? What are you willing to do? So often the answer is, no, I, I don't want to leave this behind. I like this. They say they want it until you actually say, all right, here's what you need to do. Sound familiar? There was a good, morally good rich man who also had that heart. I want to follow you, but don't tell me to leave this behind. I tell you it's demonic flies and maggots that are infesting a dead corpse, a spiritual corpse. Paul uses this type of strong language because the Galatian heart was so short-sighted, they were living for trinkets. I've used this illustration before, but when our kids were young, they would always stop by. They don't have these as much as, you know, those little 25 cent. When I was young, we, my mom used to call it chuck chucks because it made that noise. Chuck, chuck, you know, stick a quarter and, you, and then that little plastic ball comes out. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's this little junky piece, right? We would, my kids would always want to buy it, and granted, we never bought it for them. Because in my mind, I was always thinking, that's a piece of junk. You know, I'll, I'll buy you an ice cream instead. No, no, I want the chuck chuck. You know? <laughs> I mean, we're living for junk when we have this, forget ice cream, we have this feast before us. So short sighted. If God has sent his son and he's adopted you, made you an heir. Don't go back. Say, I'm not, I refuse to go back. I want that treasure. Even if it's, it is eternal, but it's out there and it's going to take some time. Don't yield. Decide, no, I want that. Secondly, he's, Paul's perplexed because not only are they short-sighted, but they've so easily forgotten God's grace. Look at verses 12 through 16. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but receive me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. 
what then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? It's not sure what happened to Paul when he first went to Galatia. And some think because of the location of Galatia, that province tends to be a little marshy, that area within Turkey today, that it's, it's possible he got malaria. And let's just say that. And so maybe if you, I know, you know, many people in Africa get malaria and you literally have this fever, chills, you're flattened, possibly for some time. And for Paul, in some way, because of his illness, when he had visited them, he was completely dependent on them. And let's say he did get malaria and let's say he was flattened and he couldn't do anything. So here he goes, goes to preach and proclaim the gospel but the first thing that happens to him is that he's sick, right? And so he's, he has flu-like symptoms. He can't move. He can't even do anything. He can't preach. And so you know what the church did? They cared for him. Uh, they, they, maybe they wet his head and brought him chicken soup and did all these things, right? They helped him. And let's, listen to what Paul says, that it was a trial to them. Oh, and though my condition was a trial to you, but for them, the gospel message eventually would, as he would eventually proclaim it, became so sweet, so wondrous, so freeing when they actually did receive Paul and maybe he was now coming out of his weakened state, but he's still frail. They said, this is an angel of God. I mean, they were so excited to have Paul, no matter how he delivered that message. Maybe it was not so powerful in its articulation and its ability, but it didn't matter. It was the message that was so sweet, so powerful. And now Paul, many years later, is hearing about the Galatians leaving behind the gospel that they so treasured and saying, no, it's my righteousness. It's my, it's my observance of this, the Sabbath and the festivals and the law and my good nature and my wealth and all these things that I do rightly. That's what makes me holy and just before God. And Paul's hearing that and saying, what happened? What happened? I'm so perplexed. They became attracted to the thinking that they could be righteous by the, just how great things look. You know, the danger of, I remember when George was with us before we moved into this building and he was, we were driving into Iron Horse and there was, you know, as I know some of you remember, a group of guys were um, putting that sign up on the front of Iron Horse, which always was so cumbersome, carrying everything. And, you know, he looked and he said, you're going to miss this. And I, in my mind, I was thinking, no, I'm not going to miss it. No. And he said, no, you're going to miss it because that's the church, the body of Christ gathering together to labor together. But when you have everything, are you going to feel the same thing? We have this idea that, well, righteousness is when people are, quote, on fire for God. And in our mind, we have a picture of what that means. People are going on missions. People are dancing during worship. Maybe not in our church. <laughs> people are raising hands. We have a zillion programs for kids and students and and, it, and the preaching is all about, do this, do that, do this. Be a better follower of Christ. Let's fast and pray. We can be an overcomer. 
Verse 17, the NIV says here in verse 17, those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. They are zealous to win you over. In other words, they're passionate. But the no good part is that it's passion for passion's sake, not for an, as an outward expression of their love for Christ, but it's to say, if I'm fasting 40 days, you better be fasting for 40 days. And if you're not, are you sure you're a Christian? You know, it's, it's that type of mentality and framework. And by doing that, we leave behind the gospel, the cross. What is it that makes us righteous before God? Christ and Christ alone. What does sanctification look like more? It's, I'm more aware of my sinfulness. I need Christ more than I ever do before. It's not that I, again, that I'm looking at, oh, I'm sinning less and less. Oh, yay me. You know, I'm, I'm, I need to have a, a party, a sinless party for myself to show that I'm actually sinning less. That's not it. It's we need Christ. Whereas we, you know, we sang about, show us Christ. We need him all the more. That's sanctification. And listen to how much Paul longs for them to awaken from their short-sightedness and forgetfulness in verses 17 through 20. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be here with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. You know, it's very interesting the way, if you look at the way Paul writes that in verses 19 through 20, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ. Do you know who Paul was? He was not a mother. He was a single man. On Mother's Day, you might be thinking, what does Paul know about motherhood? I tell you, Paul knows a lot about motherhood. A lot. Because he has dealt with the anguish of wayward children. And he's gone through great pains. He's going through the anguish of childbirth again. Such an interesting way for Paul to describe what he's going through, right? There's so much pain because Paul cares so deeply, just like a lot of you moms. You know, you go through all the labors of caring for your children. Something that no child fully understands until they become a mother. And they have their own children who also go their own ways. And they feel that pain for the first time. And then what often awakens is, oh, mom, now I understand takes so long. We all understand. It's so hard to be a mother because when you're a young mom, you're presently feeling the pains physically of, you know, the tiredness, the changing of diapers, the caring for the sick child, dealing with discipline issues, tantrums, and it's so taxing. And then you become an older mom, a much older mom. And then you realize, oh, Mom, now I understand. I put you through so much. And that's what Paul's heart is like here. He's saying, I know what, what you're going through. I was a, a, an insolent man who persecuted the Savior. I did everything I could to destroy the gospel. 
but when I was rescued on that Damascus road. And when I had this opportunity to proclaim Christ, I don't want you to go the way that I just came out of myself, which is to be a Pharisee and think my righteousness, my record, my reputation. Only when he was able to surrender that heart could he understand the mother's heart, actually, of knowing what it feels like to bear the pains of wayward children. The prodigal son demanded his inheritance, and it was the most audacious act of self selfishness. He essentially wanted his father dead so that he could have all of his money while he was living. But rather than the father giving him the money and then saying, you know what, here's your money, but now you're dead to me. I don't ever want to see you again as long as you live because you've basically said you want me to die. And so if that's the case, you're disowned as a son. He could have said that. And I think if we were watching a movie and the prodigal son story happened, when that happened, I think we would all say, how dare you evil son? Get, you know, we hope, we, we hope ven revenge on that person because that's what he deserves. But the father does something. If you ever watch a movie, you know when there's like someone has been mistreated, unjustly treated, and they are just so gracious still, and you just get so angry at that person. Why are you doing that? You, this person doesn't deserve grace and mercy. Well, that's what grace is, right? Undeserved mercy. So the father, he waits and waits. Paul has that same heart. Praise God for Paul. He's perplexed, but he's not so perplexed that he says, oh, forget it. I'm just leaving you behind. He cares enough that he pleads and he warns. Do you have that person in your life? Do you have someone in your life who cares so much for you that they love you enough to tell you when you've done something wrong, that you are in danger of the fires of hell? Do you have someone who is in your life who loves you so much that they are willing to risk their relationship with you? They're willing to risk you saying, I don't want you in my life. I don't want to hear those words, so I reject you. If you don't have that person in your life, then you're in danger. You need someone who cares for you so much that they're willing to take the risk of you even rejecting them. That's what Paul is for the Galatians. He saw how quickly they were diverting off the road of the gospel. And he needed to say this, even though they were now saying, Paul, I reject you. And Paul said, no, I love you so much. I'm still going to be in your life. Still going to be there. I'm not just going to be there to say, oh, yeah. You know, sometimes I think we are so prone to just want to please the person that we never go out and say, my friend, I love you so much, but you need to hear this. You're in danger. That act, that perspective that you have, it's not in scripture. And it veers away from Christ. You don't just want someone who, and you don't want to be that person who just simply listens and says, oh, I feel for you, and is just empathetic. That's not true empathy. True empathy is knowing if you don't say anything, they're on a dangerous road. Paul was perplexed because the Galatians were those orphans now adopted, and yet they're dumpster diving in the filth. 
and he refuses to let them do that. How can we be sons and daughters and heirs of the most precious inheritance and desire to go back to the filth? We would miss out on the greatest blessings possible. And just as I shared, I'm just going to close with this one more illustration from Jack Miller. Jack and his wife, Rosemary, began to, one of the things that Jack had been convicted to do so often was pick up, pick up hitchhikers. He did it quite regularly. And the thing about Jack Miller is he wouldn't just pick them up and share the gospel. He would invite them to his house to stay with them for weeks. That's the person he was. And one time he picked up this hitchhiker who's a too cool for school teenager, teenage boy. He was rough around the edges. And he was, even though he was sharing the gospel with him, he wasn't interested. Eventually Jack dropped him off. One summer night, um, Jack and his pastoral assistant, Ron, they drove to a nearby drive-in. This is, you know, months later, actually, almost a year later than that incident. Um, They had uh, driven to this drive-in where there were 50 drunk and high teenage boys. And, you know, if you and an older man and one other guy is, you don't really want to hang out where there's 50 drunk teenage boys who are high and it's not the place you would go to, but that is the place Jack Miller goes to. It's the type of person he was. He, he gets out of the car and he starts addressing them, talking to them about Jesus. And they sur- begin to surround the two of them. And one particular teen, his name is Davey, he was drunk and he's cursing at them. And things are getting so tense because now Davey is uttering threats and he sensed just the tension of all these other boys surrounding them. And then one teen just comes out in the middle of them and says, are you John Miller? And he answered, oh, well, maybe yes. <laughs> and then he, the boy says, don't you recognize me? And he asked with a laugh, and he said, I'm Bob Heppy. You picked me up a few weeks ago and gave me a lift, and I've been calling your house every week. He said, why? And Jack Miller said, why? He said, I wanted to find out if you were for real. And so they began talking some more. And, and then he was able to, that one teenager boy, Bob, he began to settle down all the other teenagers. Eventually, he was saying, hey, come on over. I want you all. And he started dividing them into different groups and saying, we're going to listen to these guys. He, he, I guess he was the leader of this gang. And so he divided them up and started talking to them, and they started listening. And then Jack would continuously go back and start discipling them. Many of them would turn to Christ. Eventually, Bob fell in love with his youngest daughter, Karen, and ended up marrying Jack's daughter in 1981. So this former drug addict, disconnected orphan, not only became a son of God, but became Jack's son. And the two of them started, were one of the, uh, two of them started World Harvest Mission, which is now Surge, which is now the ministry that we partner with, with uh, the Phillips family in Spain. And the, they have together shared the gospel in Africa, Ireland, England, um, parts of all around the world. Bob became an elder at, Jack Miller's first church plant 
New Life uh, Presbyterian Church in in Philadelphia. And then the f- eventually he and his wife, their uh, Jack Miller's daughter, went to London to be missionaries with their four children. You know, it's a reminder to me of the power of the gospel to take a drug addict, wayward, gangster-like person. You not only see this person come to Christ, but you welcome them literally into your family. The gospel can do that. That's why Paul is saying, do not miss out. When we miss opportunities of the gospel and try to do things solely by our own strength and will, we miss out on the miraculous, to see God do tremendous works. My friends, I really want to encourage you as you listen to this. I hope you're not sitting there thinking, you know, I don't mind being like this for a long time, sitting in the living room. Maybe even after we open up, you say, yeah, I think I'll still stay in the living room or in the kitchen or at 11 o'clock at night to be the nice alarm or you know, help me to go to sleep system. You will miss out on the gospel, on opportunities to have your soul impacted, to see many people turn to him and to trust in him. If you are in Christ, you are a son or daughter. Don't ever go back. Don't ever go back. Don't be short-sighted. Don't be forgetful. Don't be self-centered. You've been bought with a price. And for Paul, that price was so great that it left him perplexed that anyone would ever trade in being a son or daughter for being a slave. That just doesn't make sense. Let's pray together. Let's worship together. Lord, we turn to you right now and we recognize that there is no way by our own power and strength that we could in any way think we are righteous. Forgive us for the many times that we've believed that simply by doing our religious duties that you're happy with us, that that's what you want, when in fact you tell us that you detest our feasts our moral righteousness by our own strength. You're not looking for people who, by our own power, can fight anger and lust and envy. Instead, you're looking for a people who will run to Christ, your son, to see that, Jesus, you gave everything so that we might live once again. And so we want to acknowledge that our only hope is to turn to, turn to Christ As we sing this song about an altar, we remember that it was at that altar, the altar of the cross, that your body was broken, your blood was shed, so that we who were once far removed from you, the chasm infinitely great, that we can now come and enter into your presence and we are accepted and loved, covered by the blood of your son, Jesus. So we just acknowledge you above all else, O Lord. And we sing this song unto you. Amen.